Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, David Bowes discusses how to talk about freedom. Tim Sandifer explains the conscience of the Constitution. Mark Calabria discusses the incentives at work when the government borrows money. And P.J. O'Rourke takes aim at baby boomers. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. A case to be heard in March by the U.S. Supreme Court will pit pretty clearly liberty against power. The federal government and the Health and Human Services Department uh, is trying to apply uh, mandates to Hobby Lobby, among other companies. Uh, Hobby Lobby, of course, is owned by religious individuals, and they would like to express their religion through uh, those businesses. We're talking now with Ilya Shapiro, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Burris, a Research Fellow here at the Cato Institute. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So let's let's start this. What is the case about uh, here, Ilya? So there's pretty clear jurisprudence that nonprofit organizations can assert religious liberty claims. There's also pretty clear precedent that for-profit uh, businesses can assert liberty claims. Think of kosher butchers, for example. Here, however, you have a corporation, a for-profit corporation, several of them. There's actually 40 of these cases around the country, two of which have now been consolidated before the Supreme Court, where the owners, they're closely held corporations, a family typically, uh, want to conduct their business according to their religious beliefs. Uh, and here they object to having to cover, in the course of complying with the employer health insurance mandate, uh, they, they object to having to cover four of 20 contraceptives because they think that they cause uh, abortions and the taking of life. Uh, and so they, uh, they want an exemption or they want not to have to, uh, to pay for this. Uh, and the government is saying that because they're a for-profit corporation, uh, they cannot assert these liberty claims. And this is part of the, the general structure of Obamacare. One of the aspects of if you have over 50 employees, you have to supply health insurance, but not just any health insurance, health insurance that the government approves of. And based on some regulations passed uh, by Health and Human Services that said these are now preventative care that you're going to have to supply for women and they have a religious exception to it. Now, interestingly, uh, one thing you'll hear people criticize is that their you know, religious objection to this is not a very well-founded religious objection. But it's a the court doesn't care. They're not going to get involved in whether or not you have a really good religious belief. They're going to just say, do you have a deeply held religious belief? These are belief? not courts of theology. Yeah, these aren't courts of theology. I've, I've heard that argument. I think I'm just like, well, that's a really bad religious idea. They're not going to get involved with that. In, ter in terms of what the actual uh, substantive claims that the government is advancing, what are they? Well, it's saying that this is a generally applicable law uh, and they do not need to accommodate religion and moreover that companies, for-profit companies, especially corporations, cannot assert uh, religious liberty uh, interests. Uh, and this actually won't be decided based on the First Amendment's uh, free exercise clause. I mean, that, that's one of the things that's sort of in the background. Uh, but there is this larger uh, congressional statute that was passed after the last time that the Supreme Court took up a case involving religious accommodation. This is called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. Uh, and that says... Uh, not just that the government doesn't have to put in uh, exemptions if it's a generally applicable law, but uh, they have to have a compelling reason to do so whenever there's a substantial burden uh, on uh, religious exercise and narrowly tailor uh, the, the, uh, the law, the restrictions, the regulations that they apply. Here, uh, Hobby Lobby, uh, Conestoga Wood, these other companies are saying our religious beliefs are burdened. You can avoid burdening them by either granting us an exception and then setting up separate clinics or what have you for uh, employees who might want to have these uh, contraceptives that we object to. And that's a lot of what the government says is uh, we have to apply this law uniformly uh, and we it's something about – Uniform application of law for a law that is not being applied uniform to nearly anyone, so it sort of undercuts the compelling argument. It also undercuts this sort of slippery slope argument you've heard, which says, oh, well, if you're a religious person there, you're going to get exemption from taxation because you don't want to be taxed. You're going to get exemption from everything. No, that's not the claim. The claim is you have to – they have to justify this and in those situations, they can. In this situation, there are many, many other alternatives to supply these women with contraceptives. They do it for other people and they're saying that this 
this time that don't want to do it. It's a really bizarre position for Health and Human Services to take for a law that they have created as a patchwork to say this time we can't do a patchwork for some reason on religious belief. Now, there are a lot of exemptions, as you say. What are what are some of them? So some of the um, <clears throat> under 50 employees, for example, grandfathered in health plans. Although as of this recording, the president kind of by himself decided that uh, for at least a couple of years, it would be 100 employees. Yeah, it's, it's a moving target. It's here. a moving target. Uh, there's, there's some uh, insurers who are not covering really expensive drugs such as HIV drugs. And they have said that we can't keep premiums low if we cover these drugs. And the government has pretty much agreed with them. And there are assistance programs on the side the government wrote to cover HIV drugs. That's something else they could do. So when you're saying the test is a compelling purpose and then least restrictive alternative, there are so many other least restrictive alternatives. And I think that that will be the ground that the court decides it on. And indeed, 48 percent of Americans who get their health insurance from their employer uh, are not subject to or belong to plans that are not subject to this contraceptive mandate because they've been grandfathered in um, under regulations that we won't get into. Um, that's the substantive area, as, as, as Trevor has just uh, laid out. Uh, the government has also, uh, as, as I've mentioned, uh, uh, said that uh, corporations, the, that the religious liberty in question doesn't even apply in the corporate for-profit uh, setting. But as our brief makes clear, Cato filed a brief, um, you know, th that's kind of uh, uh, semantics, whether it's the corporation asserting its rights or the individuals, the human beings who clearly do have religious liberties, and you don't exactly check your, your faith at the office door. Uh, everything that, uh, for example, the owners of Hobby Lobby do uh, in conducting their business is based on their faith. They, uh, don't, they, don't sell, uh, they don't sell shot glasses. They close on Sundays. They won't uh, allow uh, beer, beer alcohol, distributors yeah. to ship uh, to transship under a, you know a, a scheme on their trucks going back to the station. They play gospel music. I mean, and on and on and on. It's not a matter of can a corporation get on its knees and pray. Uh, and prayer isn't even the the, the full scope of, of religious liberty in any event. You said obviously the the First Amendment is important uh, beyond just the scope of this case. But you said it will not be decided on those grounds? Mm -hmm. Right. In 1991, in the case of Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court, an opinion by Justice Scalia, said that when there's a generally applicable law, Congress doesn't have to create exemptions for it or, or courts don't have to uh, rule in a way to, to exempt people. That case involved uh, the smoking of peyote, which is a controlled substance as part of a Native American uh, religious uh, ritual. Uh, and this individual was fired because of that and wanted to claim uh, unemployment insurance and, and was denied. And the court upheld that denial. After that, there was uh, uh, a, lot of anger, yeah. a lot of anger in Congress. And it, it's, it's remarkable. This is just over 20 years ago. Uh, a huge bipartisan, I think unanimous uh, in, in the House at least, uh, a group of, of Congress in both parties uh, passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which said, that, okay, that First Amendment interpretation is fine, but we're going to give even more protection to religious liberty. So this seems to be the most important question, this issue of corporations having religious faith uh, versus people having religious faith. Uh, as Trevor and I were discussing before we started recording, the impact is clearly on people, and it's, it's really hard to get around that. Does the government make an attempt to get around that, or is it mostly these structural arguments that they're making? Right. Clearly, if uh, the company is fined uh, or forced to go out of business, uh, that is directly felt uh, by the uh, the owners, the, this handful, this family, uh, um, it's it's them who are being pressured and, and coerced and so forth. And so I think the government's argument, which is a structural one, it's saying that uh, you know this is not uh, uh, you know individuals we're not making do anything, we're making businesses uh, comply with this particular mandate. Uh, but it's really semantics, you know, whether the right belongs to the corporation as a legal person or whether it's a derivative right of the individuals who make it up. Um, you know, that's, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. But ultimately, it's a government action um, that uh, impinges on, the, on, on religious liberty, and the government needs a compelling reason uh, to overcome that. Uh. And I think that the, uh, the le many people on the left side of the political spectrum don't have a, a fondness for religion. So there's an element of this that seems sort of anti-religious because there's a lot of things businesses do to have a conscience and they, there's fair trade coffee and there's other types of environmental things now. And I think you know, for people who 
who don't want to give exceptions to everyone. You can imagine Starbucks or some coffee company being mandated to have to purchase non-fair trade coffee. And then they would come in and say, no, this is how we're running our business according to our conscience. Uh, we want an ex exception from this law. And they'd have to get something like conscience objector status, which is a Supreme Court case. You don't have to be just religious to get exempt from the draft. And then maybe the people on the left would understand that businesses, even for-profit businesses, aren't just mindlessly pursuing profit, but they're actually doing things that maybe aren't maximizing profit, but running it with a conscience. It's a huge selling point now. It's just the religious one seems to make some people uneasy. So when Dr. Bronner's, mm -hmm, for, exactly. exa for example, puts on the label of their product, hey, we sh you should support this GMO uh, ballot initiative, they're expressing rights that flow through their corporate entity to the individuals who own it. It, it, are these, I mean, these don't, seem clearly connected. People don't lose their rights when they associate in a whole host of ways, whether that's a, a club or a group of friends or uh, a nonprofit organization, uh, a for-profit partnership corporation or anything else. I mean, the, the corporate, non-corporate form is, is perhaps the easiest uh, uh, straw man to knock down. Um, there's no difference between, you know, uh, a, a corporation, a business doing business in the corporate form and any other, other than certain legal niceties that facilitate uh, it going, getting into contracts and, and things like that. And similarly, for-profit and non-profit, that's just a, uh, the IRS cares about that, how you manipulate your taxes and so forth, but it's not a matter of uh, what rights you can assert. You know, corporations have had all sorts of rights, even before Citizens United. This, this isn't, you know, something new in the last few years. When you're talking about the Fourth or the Fifth Amendment, the police can't just come in and steal IBM's computers uh, because it's a corporation that doesn't have Fourth Amendment rights. Or if the mayor of New York wants to move his office to uh, Rockefeller Center, he can't just take it for himself without just compensation. And the and the Constitutional Accountability Center, who is a a friend and sometimes foe uh, on the on the other side of many issues and sometimes on the same side as us, uh, they've articulated in their brief that there is no burden on people. There's just a burden on corporation as if it were some sort of transcendent body that is not made up of people. Um, they would say the same thing about Citizens United. We would say when people speak, when corporations speak, people are speaking. And I think it's interesting because uh, for many people on the left who are so concerned with corporations being dehuman or unhuman, they're the ones who are dehumanizing them, saying that they're entities marching through the world, not composed of people who have rights by themselves. Predictions for uh, how this case uh, will turn out. You know, I think there's an easy way to write a narrow opinion here that will uh, draw you know, more than just a five justice majority. I think this is a case where the administration is uh, biting off more than it can chew. Uh, like the Hosanna Tabor case, for example, the last big religious freedom case that came before the court two years ago, which was a unanimous ruling against the administration. So, um, you know, I, I am uh, optimistic that this will be a, a narrow but clear win for the challengers that will not be 5-4. Yeah, I agree. And Hosanna Tabor is worth bringing up because in that case, the government took a, a the Obama administration took a, a position before the court that was so against religion and so in favor of power over religious exemptions that Justice Kagan was was taken aback. Obama's appointee was taken aback. Are you actually arguing that you're going to burden religion this much? So even the people on the left of the court were unanimous in that case. They're not going to. Uh, buy into this argument, I think. They'll be, I think the victory will be 6-3 or 7-2 with many people on the left side of the court joining and saying this is going a little too far. And, and let's remember here, the businesses here aren't saying that their employees can't use contraceptives. They're saying we don't want to pay for these particular four uh, of the 20 that are mandated under, the, uh, under Obamacare. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. If you would like to read the Cato Institute brief, you can find that at cato.org. Uh, again, Ilya Shapiro, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies here at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Burris, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Again, uh, you, can, you can follow up on this case as it moves forward at our website, cato.org. The essentials of libertarianism can be learned in kindergarten. Don't hit people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes at a Cato City Seminar in New York discussed many of the ways we should think about and communicate ideas about freedom. I love being up here in New York. Um, I had a great pizza last night. Being a country boy from Kentucky, I ate it with my hands. 
I also went to the theater with a lot of extended family I have here in New York, and apparently these folks are not used to meeting a libertarian. And so when they asked why I was in town and I told them I was giving a speech on libertarianism, you would get this clouded look in their eyes. One of them even looked at me and in a sort of quavering voice said, are you a Republican? <laughs> I reassured her I was not, but I think she's still concerned. Anyway, that reminds me of why it, why, how important it is to learn how to talk about our ideas in a way that is appealing to people and hopefully appealing to more than the people we've already met. And so I give a lot of speeches and interviews about libertarianism and often, as in your own conversations, I'm sure, I have to begin simply by explaining what libertarianism is. And I'm always looking for effective ways to convey the essential libertarian ideas. Now this is assuming you actually want to explain and persuade people and not just to shock them, which is common among young libertarians. So today, I'm setting out very briefly my own top 10 ways to talk about libertarianism. And since we're in New York, I do it David Letterman style from number 10 to number one. So number 10, when I talk in the broadest terms about Americans who hold libertarian views, I often use the popular journalistic phrase, fiscally conservative and socially liberal. I used it on the uh, cover of this book, The Libertarian Vote. Really, of course, we're the ones who are consistent. The curious thing is why some people are fiscally libertarian and socially authoritarian, or why they're socially libertarian and fiscally authoritarian. But for political people, for journalists, that can sometimes be a way to explain it. There's an article in the Financial Times, by the way, I'm not absolutely sure if it was over the weekend or if it's in today's paper, about the rise of libertarians in America, and clearly, what that author is referring to is people who hold broadly libertarian views that could be regarded as fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Number nine, I'm also partial to Adam Smith's lovely phrase, the simple system of natural liberty. Set up a few simple rules, protect people's rights, and liberty is what happens naturally. Another way to express that is to say, capitalism is what people do when you leave them alone. And of course, this simple system of natural liberty leads to social harmony and economic growth. The most eloquent piece of libertarian writing in history is Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And the phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is a great statement of the libertarian vision. And it gives you an opportunity to talk about what does it mean to set up a government for the purpose of protecting the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Number seven, I like this somewhat longer and, and, and difficult to toss into a conversation and rarely quoted line from Ayn Rand. If men of good will wish to come together for the purpose of upholding reason and establishing a rational society, they should begin by following the example of the cowboys in Western movies when the sheriff tells them at the door to a conference room, gentlemen, leave your guns outside. Civilized people rely on persuasion, not force. Civilized people try to convince other people of the rightness of the course of action or to find a compromise. They don't use guns. They don't commission people who have force to impose their will. Now, you'll notice that the sheriff does not say, gentlemen, turn your guns into the government and never see them again. He just says, leave them out of the discussion room. Number six, sometimes I organize a speech around three key ideas of libertarianism. Frequently when I talk to student groups, this is the way I try to organize it. What are the three key ideas of libertarianism? Number one, spontaneous order. The understanding that most of the order in society, from language and law to the economy, happens naturally without a central plan. 
Nobody planned the English language. It arose spontaneously. It develops. It even changes, which frustrates people as they get older. Uh, but, but language evolves. And that's also true of the economy. Nobody plans the economy. Nobody plans how growth happens. It happens spontaneously. Number two there is natural rights, the rights to life, liberty, and property that we have inherently not as a gift from government. And libertarians may differ on whether we have these rights because they come from God, because they're inherent in our nature as human beings, because we can perceive rationally what the rights that make society work are, or from, a, from the lessons of history. We may learn simply from observing history and economics that the rights to be protected are life, liberty, and property. Whatever libertarians think the origin of these rights is, though, we all agree they do not come from the government. They don't come from a piece of paper created by government, including they don't come from the Constitution. We should not say the Constitution gives us the right to free speech. We have our right to free speech. The Constitution guarantees it. It doesn't grant it. And number three in this group, limited government, the political system that protects our rights without infringing on our freedom, the way to protect the spontaneous order of society and the individual rights that we possess is to have a limited constitutional government, a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers, delegated by the people who had the rights and the powers in the first place, enumerated in the Constitution, and thereby limited because we wrote down what powers we were giving to the government. Number five, at Tom Palmer's urging, I created a speech, or at least a speech opening, around the theme that libertarianism is the application of science and reason to the study of politics and public policy. That's a little bit shocking to some people, especially people on the left who consider themselves to be uh, the reality-based group. But libertarians deal in reality, not magic. Since the Enlightenment, we don't believe in magic anymore. We understand cause and effect. We understand why things happen, and to the extent we don't, we continue to study. That's what science is about. There are many things we still don't understand, and that's why we continue to study it. But there are still some people who believe in magic, and they're not all wizards being trained at Hogwarts. Some of them are politicians, and presidents, and mayors. And they think that a law can eliminate racism or guarantee housing or give all children a family. They don't understand the way the world really works. Libertarians know that reality matters. So we try to discover the rules that govern the world, rules like private property, free markets, and tolerance. Number four. Inspired by Robert Fulgham's bestseller a few years ago, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, I like to tell people that you learn the essence of libertarianism, which is also the essence of civilization in kindergarten. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. And as you know, in real life, most people abide by these rules. We don't hit other people to get what we want. We don't take their stuff. We find a way, if we want it, to persuade them to give it to us by generally offering them something that they value more. And we know that society doesn't work very well if we don't keep our promises. And of course, we have erected laws to protect all of these uh, rules. But sometimes when people get confused by government, they come to think that it's okay to hit other people who don't share their values, that it's okay to take people's stuff through the use of government, and that if people have made promises they don't want to keep, it's okay for the government to say, that's all right, you don't have to keep that promise. Just because your business is failing doesn't mean you have to go out of business. Just because you're having trouble paying your mortgage, you don't have to keep that promise. We'll find a way around that. We understand, just as kindergartners do, that if you follow these rules, society works. Number three, 
Another pithy explanation I like came from a high school libertarian newsletter about 20 years ago. Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, keep it in a confined area, that's what the Constitution is, and keep an eye on it, and that's what we do at the Cato Institute. Number two, in libertarianism a primer, I described the fundamental libertarian principle this way. The corollary of the libertarian principle that every person has the right to live his life as he chooses so long as he does not interfere with the equal rights of others is this. No one has the right to initiate aggression against the person or property of anyone else. This libertarians call the non-aggression axiom, the first principle. Do not use force against other people. Do not initiate force against people who have not themselves used force. And a lot of libertarians associate this particularly with the writings of Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard, who's pictured there. But its roots go back to Herbert Spencer, John Stuart Mill, John Locke, and even Epicurus. So the modern formulation is very specific. The idea is very old. In the, history, <clears throat> in the history of Western thought. And finally, the number one way to talk about libertarianism, or at least a sentence that I found effective when I was talking about libertarianism, a primer on talk shows a few years ago, is this. Libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. And every word is important there. This is a philosophy about individuals. It's a philosophy about adults. The question of what rights children have is much more complicated. Responsibility is just as important as rights. And the problem, of course, and if the talk show host gives me a few more uh, minutes, I say, the problem is that today government is making too many decisions that rightly ought to belong to us as individuals. They tell us what we can smoke. They tell us where we have to send our children to school. They tell us how we have to save for retirement. They tell us how to give to charity. And in all of those cases, they don't just tell. They are prepared to back up with force the rules that we don't get to make those decisions for ourselves. And that's why it is important for us to promote the ideas of liberty and to do so as effectively as we can, which is an ongoing challenge those of us at Cato work on. And we hope that in doing that, we are of some value to you in giving you ideas for how to communicate these ideas in your own circle. The dominant understanding of much of the Constitution shifted in the 19th century, and that shift still has implications for today. Tim Sandifer, author of the new Cato book, The Conscience of the Constitution, explained that shift at a book forum in January. On March 26, 1860, Frederick Douglass gave the most important speech of his life. It's not among his most famous. In fact, most biographers kind of skim over it in a few sentences. But it was the turning point in his career, and it was an important transition in the history of the American Constitution. The speech was entitled, The Constitution of the United States, Is It Pro-Slavery or Anti-Slavery? And in answering that question, anti-slavery, Douglas was signaling a new phase in the abolitionist movement. Previously, abolitionists led by William Lloyd Garrison had denounced the Constitution as a pact with hell and burned it at July 4th meetings because they considered it an essentially pro-slavery document. Garrison essentially agreed with the slave owners of the South that the Constitution protected slavery as a property right, and therefore he damned it as evil and insisted that the North should secede from the Union. He printed the motto, No Union with Slaveholders, on the masthead of his newspaper, The Liberator. At first, Douglas was attracted to this view. After escaping slavery, he spoke at his first anti-slavery meeting at Garrison's invitation, and it was Garrison who helped persuade him to write his famous autobiography. 
But by 1860, Douglas and others were having doubts about Garrison's anti-constitutionalism. A group of legal scholars led by people like Lysander Spooner, Samuel Chase, William Jay, Charles Sumner, Joel Tiffany, and especially former President John Quincy Adams had formulated an interpretation of the Constitution based on the classical liberal principles of the Declaration of Independence. In their view, the Constitution made at most temporary accommodations for slavery, placing it in what Lincoln would call the course of ultimate extinction. Some of these authors went even further, arguing that the Constitution was incompatible with slavery so that slavery was already unconstitutional. It was after reading these writers that Douglas became persuaded that the Constitution did not protect slavery. Instead, as he put it in a later speech, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Now, the intellectual godfather of these anti-slavery constitutionalists was John Quincy Adams, who argued that the Constitution must be interpreted in the light of the Declaration. The Declaration, he said, was essentially a constitution of the United States. It constituted the people of the United States as a single people, the one people who had dissolved the political bands that connected them with Great Britain. And the Declaration thereby created the American nation, but not on the basis of accident, historical circumstance, or ethnicity, but on the basis of certain principles. The principles in, articulated in the Declaration, that all men are created equal, endowed with certain rights that no just government may deprive them of. Independence was declared, wrote Adams, in one of the most popular pamphlets of the 1830s. The colonists were proclaimed to be one people renouncing all allegiance to the British crown. Thenceforth, their charter was the Declaration of Independence. Their rights, the natural rights of mankind. Their government, founded upon the self-evident truths proclaimed in the Declaration. The Constitution was the complement to the Declaration of Independence, founded upon the same principles, carrying them into practical execution, and forming with it one entire system of government." End quote. Unfortunately, Adams noted some lawyers and politicians, under the influence of the English writer William Blackstone, failed to understand the radicalism of this new idea of government power. And in fact, Blackstone is often cited today as a legal authority for interpreting the Constitution by people who ignore what contempt many of the founders had for some of Blackstone's views. Jefferson, for example, said that Blackstone was perverting the rising generation of legal scholars. James Wilson denounced Blackstone. In 1803, St. George Tucker published an entire fifth volume to his edition of Blackstone, devoted entirely to disproving all the things Blackstone said about government sovereignty. Blackstone believed that government is essentially inherently sovereign, so that every government contains within it, quote, supreme, irresistible, absolute power, which can, quote, do everything that is not naturally impossible, end quote. While government can grant certain privileges to people, like freedom of speech, those privileges can be revoked whenever the government considers it necessary to do so, in Blackstone's view. This was also the vision shared by the pro-slavery intellectuals. Basing their view on Blackstone's concept of absolute sovereignty, they argued that the states were sovereign, not the federal government, and that states had supreme, irresistible, absolute power they could choose whether to grant rights to people or not. As John C. Calhoun, the most famous of the pro-slavery thinkers, put it, quote, it is a great and dangerous error to suppose that all people are naturally entitled to liberty. It is a reward to be earned, not a blessing to be gratuitously lavished on all alike, a reward reserved for the intelligent, the patriotic, the virtuous, and the deserving, and not a boon to be bestowed on people too ignorant, degraded, and vicious to be capable either of appreciating or of enjoying it, end quote. Now, this state's rights theory was obviously contrary to the Declaration, which presumes that all people are basically free and that they then create a government which is subservient to their rights. The Declaration, wrote Adams, quote, proclaims the natural rights of man and the constituent power of the people to be the only sources of legitimate power. State sovereignty is a mere argument of power without regard to right, a mere reproduction of the omnipotence of the British Parliament in another form, and therefore not only inconsistent with, but directly in opposition to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, end quote. The idea that government was sovereign and that rights are just permissions that the government gives to people was, he said, vanquished by the Declaration. 
if the nation was sovereign, and that sovereignty was limited by the principles of the Declaration, then not only could states have no legitimate authority to secede from the Union, but they could not claim power to reduce a group of people to perpetual slavery. Adams therefore became one of the bravest voices against slavery in the Congress. Frederick Douglass learned to read by reading uh, uh, Adams' speeches. Adams mentored the rising generation of abolitionists, including Sumner, who you remember was caned on the floor of the US Senate for his wonderful speech, The Barbarism of Slavery. And William Seward, who became Secretary of State and wrote the first biography of John, John Quincy Adams, and of course, Abraham Lincoln, who served in Congress the same term that John Quincy Adams died on the floor of the House of Representatives. These people built on Adams's constitutional argument an anti-slavery theory that had two basic principles. First, the nation was sovereign, not the states. And therefore, Americans were Americans first and citizens of states only secondarily. And second, state, the rights of national citizenship include the natural rights of all mankind, as well as the Constitution's enumerated rights and the rights inherited from the English common law. The Declaration's reference to the one people in the Constitution's reference to we the people of the United States did not exclude blacks. So all American people, black as well as white, qualified as Americans entitled to national citizenship and no state could justly exclude black citizens or reduce blacks to slavery or otherwise violate their rights. Now the core of this theory was that the Declaration is the pole star for understanding the Constitution, that it is the conscience of the Constitution, and its principles meant that liberty, not democratic self-government, was the core value of our political system. When government borrows money, it doesn't exactly ask permission, but getting people to buy that debt has become much more convoluted in recent years. At a Cato Institute City seminar in New York, Cato's Mark Calabria described how the government stacks money lending in its favor. What I'm going to talk about this morning is how government comes up with ways to force you, to nudge you, and particularly the financial system, to lend to, to government at your loss. Uh, economists, as I mentioned, we have uh, fancy names for things like this. We just can't say things straight out. We call this financial repression. Uh, and the net effect of this is to shift resources from the private sector to the government, which, of course, ultimately reduces liberty and reduces economic growth. Um, now, economists came up with this term financial oppression in the early 70s, but, of course, this is a practice that has gone back centuries. Uh, to give you some examples of history, how this has been used, one of the more explicit types of interest rate ceilings. I'm going to come back and talk to that in just a little bit. Uh, but the other type that we often see, and this is the most predominant type today, is where government tries to create a captive audience for its own debt. Um, and again, the ultimate objective of financial repression is so that the government can borrow more cheaply than it would otherwise. And of course, that facilitates greater spending uh, by that borrowing. Uh, and of course, the ultimate objective of this is to maintain, if not enlarge, the size of government. Uh, you often hear these things disguised as consumer protection or safety and soundness measures, and I'm going to touch on that in a moment. Uh, but let's think about interest rate caps. They're often talked about uh, is protecting consumers. Uh, but again, think about it this way. Uh, and if those of you who remember the Regulation Q days in the banking world, uh, if you could only get so much on your deposits, but the government over here was offering a slightly higher rate, that would push, push lending to the government and away from the banking system uh, in general. Now, of course, governments aren't the only ones who do this. Uh, someone who was uh, raised a good Catholic. You, know, you study the history of the Vatican, and they've largely, for centuries, been the largest, one of the largest borrowers in the world. It was not surprising that the Vatican also said, you can only lend to the Vatican at very low rates. You know, that's what the usury caps uh, for years, for centuries, made that far cheaper to do. As I mentioned, uh, we had something a long time in the United States banking called Regulation Q, which lasted uh, in some form or another until 1986. Uh, and it was presented as a way to limit competition from banks. And, of course, there's merit to that. If you give a subsidy, you give a guarantee to banks, they're going to compete with each other until they run each other out of business. And one way they're going to do that is offering higher rates. So there's certainly some logic to it. And, of course, this is where financial repression is most insidious, is there's always some grain of logic uh, to the regulations that are offered. But if you look beyond it, you see that that logic is not actually the primary driver. 
Uh, and so for those of you who remember the days of free toasters, uh, there often are ways to get around these restrictions in the banking world uh, that are less efficient um, and that are more costly than just allowing uh, banks to offer actually those rates. Uh, I want to give you some sense uh, of, as I mentioned earlier, you're putting a cap on deposits that is below the rate of government, how that impacts the government the household demand for government debt. Uh, so Reg Q was really at its height in force between post-World War II uh, and, as I mentioned, 1986. During that time, households held almost a third of outstanding U.S. Treasuries. It really was, uh, and this was, again, post-World War II, so this wasn't the necessarily the Liberty Bond movement uh, and many of those things. After we got rid of Regulation Q, that percentage almost fell in half as banks were able to compete with the government, other sources of finance, and were able to compete with the government. Uh, and not surprisingly, this raised the cost of borrowing for the government. They didn't like that, necessarily. Uh, and my estimate, to give you a sense of it, is after we got rid of regulation cues, the cost of borrowing for the government increased by about 80 basis points. So, you know, a little bit more than a, you know, just around a percentage point. Um, that subsidy is probably, on estimate, about 13, 14, 15 billion a year that the government got from forcing rates lower. Now, um, Reg Q is gone. We don't have explicit caps. The FDIC does harass you, uh, given the rate, whatever your charge might be. So there is some attempts to limit competition. But the, really the method that we use today, uh, and we're really seeing this embedded in Dodd-Frank and many other measures, is how government regulations are going to try to force, essentially, financial institutions to hold large parts of the federal debt. Uh, and I should certainly emphasize, this is not something new in banking history. Uh, in the National Banking Act of 1863, if you wanted to set up a national bank, you could only do so by buying U.S. Treasuries. And, of course, the national we forget that the national banking system was created as a way to finance the Civil War. It was not created as a way uh, to have freer banking. It was not created as a way to bring safety and soundness to the banking system. It was created as, if you give us money to fund a war, we will give you a monopoly privilege. Um, and, of course, uh, this is carried on to modern times and things called reserve requirements or capital requirements. Um, and, again, banks have had to compete more aggressively in these times. But uh, I, I want to mention, after we got rid of Regulation Q, we did see this drop in demand for treasuries, and the funding costs for the government became much more difficult. Now, the bank regulators and governments woke up to that. Uh, in the sort of after the uh, savings and loan crisis, something that was called Basel I, uh, which was the first attempt to really construct risk rates for bank capital. Prior to that, you had a flat leverage ratio, uh, which I'll be quite honest, I'm much more sympathy to than the uh, risk weighting system we have today. Uh, that's not to deny that there is some economic logic to a risk weighting, but lo and behold, what comes out of this is that the government somehow always looks like it's risk-free. Uh, if you want, uh, you know, you look at the latest iteration of Basel II, uh, we're in the Basel III process, but if you want to stand, understand part of what went on in Europe, all you need to look at is that you had a system of bank regulation that told you Greek debt was risk-free. You know, th this is a country that's been in default for about a sixth of its existence, yet government officials said this is risk-free. Uh, and that's one of the problems with these risk weights is they're always subject to politics. Uh, and one of the things that's always going to come out of this is the favoring of government entities over private sector entities. Uh, we just over this weekend saw renewed rules passed by the Basel Committee. Uh, and there's something being called a liquidity coverage ratio. I won't go into details of it, but what I will go into the detail of is if this is fully implemented, it will force American banks to hold an extra trillion dollars in treasuries. Somehow, I suspect that the Treasury Department would be more than willing to supply them with that extra trillion dollars. Uh, and we see this in other industries as well, insurance companies, hedge funds, pension funds. All of these have restrictions on what they can hold, uh, and this results in a very large holding of treasuries by the financial system. Whether or not baby boomers invented navel-gazing, the large cohort of Americans born following World War II took the idea to new heights. P.J. O'Rourke engages in some critical navel-gazing in his new book, The Baby Boom. He discussed the book at the Cato Institute in January. We, we the baby boom, are the generation that changed everything. Of all the eras and epochs of Americans, ours is the one that made the biggest impression on ourselves. 
But that's an important accomplishment because we're the generation that created the self, made the firmament of the self, divided the light of the self from the darkness of the self, and said, let there be self. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, you may have noticed this yourself. Now, this is not to say we're a selfish generation. Selfish means just means too concerned with the self. And we're not. Self isn't something we're just, you know, concerned with, you know. We are the self. Before us, self was without form and void, like, like our parents and our dumpy clothes and vague ideas. And then we came along. And now the personal is the political. The personal is the socioeconomic. The personal is the religious and the secular, the science and the arts. Personal is everything that creepeth upon the earth after his, and let us hasten to add her kind. If Baby Boom has done one thing, it is to beget a personal universe. And our apologies to anybody who personally happens to be a jerk. Because you know? self, self is like fish, proverbially speaking. You give a man a fish, you fed him for a day. Teach a man to fish. If he turns into a dry fly catch-and-release angling fanatic up to his liver in icy water, pestering trout with three-pound test line and $1,000 graphite rod, well, at least his life partner is glad to have him out of the house. <laughs> so here we are in the baby boom cosmos, formed in our image, personally tailored to our individual needs, and predetermined to be eternally fresh and novel. And we saw that it was good. Or, or pretty good. I mean, we should have had a, a cooler name, the way the, the lost generation did, you know, except good luck to anybody who tries to tell the baby boom to get lost. Um, anyway, it's too late now. We're stuck with being described as exploding infants, and maybe it's time now that we have splattered ourselves all over the place for the baby boom to look back and think, what made us who we are? What caused us to act the way we do? The truth is, you know, if we hadn't decided to be young forever, we would be old. Um, the youngest baby boomers, born in the last year when anybody thought it was hip to like Lyndon Johnson, are, are turning 50 this year, 2014. Now, we'd be sad about getting old if we weren't too busy remarrying younger wives, reviving careers that hit glass ceilings when, when children arrived, and renewing prescriptions for drugs that keep us from being sad. And we will never retire. Uh, we can't. The mortgage is underwater. Uh, we're, we're in debt up to the Rogaine for the kids' college education. And uh, it serves us right, because we're the generation who insisted that a passion for living should replace working for one. <laughs> Still, it's an appropriate moment for us to uh, weigh what we have wrought and tally what we've added to and subtracted from existence. Uh, we've reached the age of accountability. The world is our fault. Um, we are the generation that has an excuse for everything. One of our greatest contributions to modern life, as far as I'm concerned. But the world is still our fault. It's, it's just a matter of power and privilege demography. Whenever anything happens anywhere, somebody over 50 signs the bill for it. And the baby boom, seated as we are at the head of life's table, is hearing Generation X, Generation Y, and the Millennials all saying, check, please. Now, I had a little problem with this book. Uh, the problem with the book was just trying to talk about the whole baby boom all at once. It's huge, you know, and to address America's baby boom is to face big, broad problems. Uh, uh, like I said, we number more than 75 million. And we're, we are not only diverse, but we take a thorny pride in our every deviation from the norm, even though we're in therapy for it. We, we, we are all alike in that we each think we're unusual. You know? Now, fortunately, we are all alike in our, our approach to big, broad problems. We won't face them. There is a website for that, a support group to join, a class to take, alternative medicine, regular exercise, a book that explains it all, a celebrity on TV who's been through the same thing, or we can eliminate gluten from our diet. History is full of generations that had too many problems. We are the first generation to have too many solutions, which is not a problem. Because you consider the people who have faced up squarely to the deepest and most perplexing conundrums of existence. Uh, I take Leo Tolstoy, for example. 
Uh, he tackled every one of these things. He tackled, why are we here? What kind of life should we lead? The nature of evil, the character of love, the essence of identity, salvation, suffering, death. And what did it get him? Dead, for one thing, you know, and, and off his rocker for the last 30 years of his life. Plus, Tolstoy was saddled with a... a, a thousand-page novel about war and peace and everything else you can think of, which he couldn't even look up on Wikipedia because he hadn't written it yet. What a life. You know, if Leo Tolstoy, if he'd been a baby boomer, he could have entered a triathlon, you know, a baby boom innovation in the middle 1970s. Uh, you know, by the middle 1970s, we knew we couldn't, we couldn't run away from our problems. But if we added cycling and swimming, no. So, to the problems of talking about the baby boom, let us turn our big, broad, yet soon to be firmed up, thanks to the triathlon for seniors that we're planning to enter generational backsides. Um, however, a difficulty still remains. Uh, most groups of people who are, 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 are tagged by history as a, a generation can, it can be described in a kind of easy offhand way. Uh, they're folks kind of the same age, experiencing sort of the same things and sort of the same place. It's like the cast of, of Seinfeld or, or Friends, you know? You know, I, I'm pretty sure, as a result of taking a modern literature class in college, that, uh, that Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott, and Zelda Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, Henry Miller, and Ezra Pound were roommates in a big apartment on the left bank in Paris in the 1920s. Uh, if that's not true, I give that idea for a sitcom free to any of the members of the audience here. Uh, but unlike most generations, um, the baby boom has an exact definition. Uh, we are the children who were born during a period after World War II when the long-term trend in fertility among American women was exceeded. And I had, that excess began promptly in 1946 when all the guys got home from the war, and it gradually tapered off until 1964 when American women were taking a pill or rolling over and pretending to be asleep or telling their husbands to go phone the Pope about where to buy rubbers. Um, 46 to 64, so it's a long time. So the distinctions among different kinds of baby boomers need, need to be made. Um, now, geographical distinctions, that really doesn't work for a generation that, that moved around as much as we did. Uh, class, uh, 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 distinctions according to, to class, to race, gender, sexual orientation would be offensive to baby boom sensitivities. And, and furthermore, they'd be pretty much beside the point in a book by me because as much as I want to be as different from everyone else as a member of the baby boom ought to be, uh, I happen to be uh, hopelessly ordinary in, in matters of race, class, gender identification, which section of Playboy I turned to first when I was 16. I'm, I'm just a regular guy. But time is a distinction that we all have to endure. So I, what I did in the book was I sorted the baby boom uh, uh, by age. Uh, the baby boom senior class, uh, they were born in the late 1940s, um, um, obviously of that ilk. Uh, uh, now we seniors, we were, kind of, we were on the bow wave of the baby boom's voyage of exploration, but, but we were also closely tethered uh, to the wake of preceding generations. Uh, so in effect, what happened with the seniors is uh, senior, we were, we were keel-hauled. We were uh, dragged under the hull, you know, by the baby boom experience, and we were left a bit soggy and shaken. Um, and if we wound up as financial advisors trying to wear tongue studs or as Trotskyites trying to organize Tea Party protests or both, you know, uh, we, we are to be forgiven. Uh, I guess if I can try to explain the senior class of the baby boom, it would be, uh, I, I, all I really have to say is that it includes both Hillary Clinton and Cheech of Cheech and Chong, you know? Uh, now, the junior class, and I think, you know, this high school class is a very good way to, to, to explain a generation that refused to grow up. The, the, the junior class, they were born in the early 50s. They were often the younger siblings of the senior class, and they, they came of age when... Uh, Basically, the parents were just throwing in the towel. They were just throwing in the towel during the what's the matter with kids these days shouting match. They'd given up, you know. And so the juniors ended up pursuing the notions, the whims, and the fancies of the baby boom with a, with a greater intensity even than the, than, than, the, than the older baby boomers. For them, drugs were no longer experimental. Drugs were proven, you know. I mean, John Belushi. John Belushi was a member of the junior class and actually... John was born in 1949, but, but, but I, I knew John, and I, I'm sure he was held back a couple of years, so I think we can count him <laughs> in with it. 
The juniors were the teeny boppers. They were the groupies and the barefoot urchins of the Haight-Ashbury. Uh, now they hunted up some shoes when they eventually made their way to Silicon Valley. Uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are, are, are their part of, the, uh, of that junior class, born in 1955. But you notice they never did find their neckties. You know, so, um, Now the sophomores, the sophomores, they're the group that were born in the late 50s. And by the time they reached adolescence, the baby boom ethos had pretty much permeated society. Sophomores, uh, uh, they gladly accepted sex, drugs, rock and roll, and the deep philosophical underpinnings thereof. But they had seen enough of the baby boom in action to realize that what works in general terms doesn't always work when the bong sets fire to the beanbag chair. <laughs> Circumstances had changed. In college, many of the sophomores attended classes. Uh, some even snuck off and got MBAs. You know. See, uh, the, the preppy handbook was written by members of the baby boom sophomore class. Then there is the freshman class. Freshman class were born in the early 60s, and they, 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 were, they didn't get it, really. They felt no visceral effects from the events that formed the baby boom. You know, to freshmen, the Vietnam War was just something that was inexplicably always on television, like Ed McMahon. You know, I mean, who knew? Uh, a feminism had gone from being a pressing social issue to a Bea Arthur TV comedy show that their parents liked, you know, and, uh, and Martin, Luther, uh, Martin Luther King, it was a day off from work, you know. I mean, they just, none of these things really registered with them. To them, the baby boom world that we live in now is just a given. It was an ocean in which they were fish. And, and I think that um, the best example of that to me is uh, actually our current president. Now, you may remember during his first run uh, uh, for, the, for the presidency that there was quite a kerfluffle about the minister at his church, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Um, was a man, uh, you may recall, Jeremiah Wright had a, was a man of forceful opinions. Forceful opinions forcefully put. Goddamn America in the CIA-invented uh, HIV and all sorts of other things like that. Well, of course, Fox News and the Republican Party and political operatives took this and ran with it as absolute best they could. They were determined to make a huge scandal out of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who had married the Obamas, who had christened their children. And, um, you know, after months of, of trying to turn this into a, a George Washington Bridge Chris Christie scandal, you know, but it basically came down to, yes, President Obama had been in church, but no, he hadn't been paying any attention to any of this. You know, it just right, gone right by him, you know. And I thought, boy, that's a freshman baby boomer for you because, you know, the, the senior class of the baby boomers, we would have been standing on the pews with a clenched fist going, you know, right on and suggesting property damage at the nearby uh, University of Chicago, you know. And the junior class of the baby boom, assuming they were awake early enough to go to church and assuming they could find where the church was, you know, would have been sitting there kind of nodding in stoned agreement and hoping that the church's social outreach program included a free lunch. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the sophomore class uh, 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 of the baby boom, uh, they, you know, they, they're a little more square. They would have been sitting there going, I, I don't know, Reverend Wright, I think that's pitching it a little high and inside, you know. But the freshman, freshman class, President Obama, he's just in the back pew, you know, on his Blackberry with Rahm Emanuel, you know, just floating right by his head, you know. <laughs> he didn't even notice, you know. The whole world's full of crap, right, you know. And now, now the baby boom is the world's future. And everyone on this planet is going to turn into the American baby boom eventually, eventually, as soon as families get excessively prosperous and happy, excessively loving and permiss permissive with their children, start feeling too much affection for their kids. Well, unless, of course, baby boom-style extravagant freedom and scant responsibility and plenty of money and modicum of peace, unless that leads to such a high rate of carbon emissions that we all fry or drown or, or, or free. I can't remember. I can't keep up with the climate change people. You know, it was global warming there for a while, uh, and then it got cold. And now it's climate change. You may have, you may, may have noticed that. But at any rate, uh, it's going to kill us. Uh, but, but you can't have everything. You know, can't have everything. And you can have a profusion of opportunity and at the same time a collapse of traditional social standards. 
And that is just what has happened in Western Europe and the wealthiest parts of Asia and Latin America. They're almost as useless as we American baby boomers are. And I mean useless in the best sense, you know, of, uh, with you know, abundant disposable income, ample leisure time to devote to pointless activities that don't harm anybody much except ourselves uh, and sometimes the trout. Uh, baby boom, baby boom like places, it's, it's interesting to me that baby boom like places, they all seem to be having in that, that kind of same kind of national political deadlock that we have too, you know, and, and a lot of the pundits all tut tut this, you know, and they, 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 they all, you know, political deadlock's a, 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 a terrible thing. But I'll tell you something, political deadlock is a big improvement over political unity, you know, national lockstep on some bellicose purpose, you know. I mean, people forget Gulf of Tonkin resolution, you know, that passed the, uh, that passed the, uh, the House of Representatives unanimously. Passed the House of Representatives unanimously, and passed the Senate with like one vote against it. You know? I mean, national unity, that's bombing Pearl Harbor is what happens. So give me deadlock any day of the week. You know? And we've all got it. All the baby boom countries have it. You know? And I foresee a day you know, when noxious politics that we've been so familiar with, we were so familiar with in the 20th century, noxious politics are going to disappear uh, because all the world's political science classes are going to happily, happily degenerate into those hour-long shouting matches the way my political science class did back in 1968. And I can't even remember what we were shouting about. We were all against the Vietnam War, you know. The students were against the Vietnam War. The professor was against the Vietnam War. Uh, the custodial staff, as far as I knew, they were against the Vietnam War. And we, yet we were all sh spent the whole hour shouting at each other about the Vietnam War, you know. And I, I just think, you know, that's a good thing. I think because it's, it's hard to be truly politically noxious when you would rather be obnoxious instead, you know? Stupid notions of central planning, of nationalization, of protectionist trade barriers, they're gonna, they're gonna fall by the wayside when everybody is asleep in economics 101 the way I was asleep in economics 101. I mean, well, we got a better world economy during, under the, the, the reign of the baby boom because no baby boomer ever passed that Econ 101 except by getting the last year's test from the frat house. And sooner or later, you know, at one point, there's 1.29. 1.29 billion people in this world who are living on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, the way I once was when I was selling pot, uh, so I'd smoke up all the profits. You know? um, and you know, pretty soon at 1.29 billion people, they're going to figure out a better way. They're going to figure out a better way. In fact, I just received an email from Nigeria about a rather large amount of money needing to be <laughs> transferred to an American bank with only modest uh, assistance on my part. You know, there will be, there will come a day, there will be no f religious fanaticism in a baby boom world because we're not a generation who listens to anybody, God included, you know. In our defense, I, I doubt God minds us not bothering about him. Very few of the people that we've bothered, parents and college deans and the police and LBJ and attractive types in bars, very few of them have minded when we quit bothering them, you know. I mean... <laughs> World peace is probably a little too much to ask for, but we're, not, we're never going to have those, those, the, the, those huge conscripted armies that, that, that used to be used to fight wars because everybody will have a letter from their doctor about how they're allergic to camouflage. You know, you're just not going to be able to get those huge armies together again. And besides, war is about power. And you accuse the baby boom of a lot of things, but we're not a power-hungry generation because... Power comes with that kicker that I mentioned, responsibility, you know? And we're just not good with responsibility. We're greedy. We're greedy for love. We're greedy for happiness. We're greedy for experience, sensation, thrills, praise, fame, adulation, inner peace, and as it turns out, money. Uh, health and fitness, too. But we're not greedy for power. And I, I can prove that to you. I can prove that to you because take a look around this town. Look at the baby boomers who have climbed to the peak of power here in Washington. Are they the best and the brightest of the baby boom? No. No, the best and the brightest, they're over at Goldman Sachs. You know? So I say, you know, to the world, I say, all of you tyrannical, despotic, overbearing squares with your two-bit autocracies at the butt ends of the world, you'll turn into baby boomers, too. It shall rain on your Woodstock.
You shall spend your treasure on discos, cocaine, and rehab. Your junk bonds shall default and your dot-com bubble shall burst. You shall form overage garage bands and try to play Margaritaville. Your third spouse shall acquire an American Express black card with a credit limit higher than the U.S. national debt. Your daughters shall wear nose rings. Your sons shall have pagan symbols indelibly marked upon their necks. Unless, of course, you belong to one of those cultures where daughters wear nose rings and sons have pagan symbols indelibly marked upon their necks, in which case they shall not. <laughs> you shall be perplexed by the internet. You shall grow old and addled enough to vote for Ross Perot in a presidential primary. There is no escape from happiness, attention, affection, freedom, irresponsibility, money, peace, opportunity, and deciding everything you were ever told was bullshit. So I say, behold the baby boom, ye mighty, and despair. The Founding Fathers guaranteed trial by jury three times in the Constitution, more than any other right, since juries can serve as the final check on government's power to enforce unjust laws. But what happens when jurors decide not to enforce the law or refuse to convict a defendant if they conclude it would be wrong? A reissued, highly regarded Cato book, Jury Nullification, answers these questions and takes readers through a history of jury independence the book is now available at Cato.org and Amazon.com. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.